Hi, everybody. Now, many of you recently saw around mid-August, just a week or so ago, a video that went viral of a doctor standing before a district school board talking about the fact that the school board was taking in information from the CDC that was inaccurate and going to have a deleterious effect on the health of people, and he explained why. It was a fabulous video. People were sharing it everywhere, including myself. Uh, it, as I said earlier, it went viral, and we're talking about Dr. Dan Stock. So let's go to Dan because he's going to talk about what all he's been through since this happened, but most importantly, why he's speaking up about the CDC recommendations and COVID and vaccines, and which we will just call the virus and shots or jabs because of algorithm flagging because they could take this video down to Dan. So welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Oh, love seeing the man, love seeing, the, because we were looking at your back in that viral video, love seeing the man behind the voice. I loved what you did. I loved what you had to say. And what I want to find out is what prompted you to go before the school board and make this just so direct in your face plea to please study the science? Um, I'm scared. And I'll just tell you the reason I'm scared. Um, my dad was a bomber pilot in World War II, so I became a student of Nazi Germany history. And this reminds me very much of Nazi Germany and how it developed. And when I see people ignoring data um, wholesale, even when it costs other people's lives, and falsifying data so that they can induce fear, this is exactly what it took to get the Nazis in power in Germany. And when I see that happening, it's like, hey, um, dad took worse than this. I got to stand up and say something. So I had several parents who knew my views on this, who, who knew how scared I was of this, who asked me to come speak to the school board. And so I went to speak to the school board and didn't know it was being videotaped, but it, uh, if it's getting the word out so that people understand exactly what's going on, I'm happy to have it out there. It was such an articulate, uh, it was only, what, six or seven minutes long, so if you can find it on YouTube, um, an incredibly articulate, impactful, brief um, presentation to them, and you offered at the time to give them thumb drives with all of the data, the real science, the background on everything. You even offered to represent them if they made a bold decision and anyone was sued pro bono to stand up for them in court as an expert witness on the subject. So what I want to know before we go into this and for everyone else who's already seen that video, did any of them take you up on it? Did any of them call you? Did any of them review this material? Well, I spoke with them after the lecture, and they told me that they were very uncomfortable with the advice of the CDC and the NIH and the Indiana State Board of Health. Um, unfortunately, the Indiana State Board of Health has been granted by our legislature the right to actually um, determine law in this area. And so they've actually put out laws that said if a state board, of, if the uh, school system, the school board uh, doesn't have a uh, mask thing in place, um, and doesn't contact, trace, and quarantine that anybody in the school system who opposes those mandates from the State Board of Health have committed a Class two misdemeanor. So everybody on the school board would have actually been creating a Class two misdemeanor. And that they would, if they didn't have a mask mandate contingency plan in place, the State Board of Health would come close the entire school down. And the board caved in. Rather than do civil disobedience, they just gave in. And at the, at the meeting, which was actually a week ago today, where they did that, they pretty much said, hey, look, there's places closing school boards. There's closing schools down for this. 
Um, and so our problem right now is that our, our State Board of Health, like all of the government things to do with healthcare, they have way too much power than what they should have. Um, I think they're mostly listening to the CDC and probably being financially threatened by the CDC and the NIH because our federal government financially threatens the states um, when it wants to get its way with them. And I suspect that the, for those things, first of all, um, our state health commissioner is a very good OBGYN. I actually referred her patients, um, including members of my family. Um, but if you've been to medical school, you know how much you don't learn about immunology and inflammation regulation. You go off to functional medicine training, get a little bit more than you're a geek like me, you go to even more. And you recognize that there's probably very little in that state health commissioner's knowledge base that allows her to take the CDC and the NIH to task, especially if there's financial or political threats at bay, which you can just about guarantee there are, because that's what the federal government does to people. And so um, that's been the result of it here at that school system. Uh, since then, I've been contacted by other school systems where the parents are actually trying to get the uh, school boards to actually resign and let parents take over who are willing to say, hey, come charge me with a misdemeanor and come close down my school and we'll have it anyway. And then you can see if the police will come arrest us and if the attorney general will prosecute us. Um, Did you ever think we'd be having a conversation like this? Um, you know, I started to think about this in March of 2020 when I saw these irrational things suddenly start coming out of the CDC and the NIH. It's like, look, this doesn't make sense. This thing is like influenza. It spreads the same way. Masking and quarantining and all of this will have no effect in an aerosol particle uh, transmitted respiratory virus with animal reservoirs. And I began to say, oh, no, there's the science is going away. It's no longer got anything to do with facts. That level of ignorance at the, when it gets to the level of a powerful government can cause all kinds of destruction. And I'm not terribly surprised that we're here. Uh, frightened, but not terribly surprised. After all, like I say, this is what happened in Nazi Germany. Right. So let me ask you something here. Okay, so you're talking about masks and that masking doesn't help with this type of respiratory ailment or virus. And yet people say, people argue that, okay, but cold and flu was kind of knocked out for that year. We didn't see the normal influenza and cold season. And now again, we were isolated as well. So what do you say to that? Well, I would say two things. Uh, first of all, there were studies done back in 2008 where they actually had a randomized trial. Uh, within a, I can't remember the city in New England where they did it, where they actually paid people to be randomized, some of them who are going to do all the viral avoidance measures and some who are going to be as cavalier as they could be. And it didn't reduce the hospitalization rate, symptom rate, or death rate from influenza. So I tell people the right study's been done with influenza and it didn't work. This is transmitted the same way influenza is. But there's actually a, an even uh, more powerful explanation which feeds right back into the deceit from the federal government on this. And that is the, the uh, reporting criteria for reporting a disease are determined by a federal regulation. And prior to March of 2020, the way you had to report any disease, you had to have three criteria. You had to have symptoms consistent with that pathogen's known disease. You had to have a validated test that was positive that says this pathogen is there. And the third thing was you couldn't have any other tests that were positive that might be able to explain the symptoms, all right? And then if you wanted to be a death from that pathogen, you had to have all of that and you had to die from a disease process that was not going on at the time you developed the symptoms. 
So if you had a heart failure and you got influenza and it made your heart failure get worse and you died from heart failure, you weren't counted as an influenza death. Mm -hmm. So in March of last year, in direct violation of federal law, uh, they changed the regulation. When I say in direct violation, uh, the federal laws say that if you're going to change a regulation, you have to have a 60-day comment period. And that's there so that everybody in the country, including those of us who understand epidemiology, can call up and say, what you're doing is irrational. We'll have no way to compare this to other diseases and have any way to say how we should be allocating resources. But the way they changed it in violation of the federal law was actually several ways. The first thing they said was we don't have to have symptoms or a test. You can just have symptoms. Well, remember, the symptoms of influenza are nearly identical to the vast majority of patients to the symptoms of uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So by that very standpoint, if you just had symptoms, if you did nothing else, you're an influenza patient who's now a COVID-19 patient. Second of all, they said you can have symptoms or a positive test, and the test doesn't have to be validated. Most people don't know that these PCR tests are actually un- operating under an experimental use authorization as well. They've never been validated to say, hey, when our test comes back positive, we really have a case here. Um, as a and matter of fact, those tests are going by the by December 31st, right? Yes. As a matter of fact, they're being pulled off December 31st. The World Health Organization on the day after Mr. Biden's inauguration announced that they recognized the test had an incredibly high false positive rate. As a matter of fact, studies have since then brought up that it's in the neighborhood, depending on the population you test, between 25 and 75 percent false positive rate. That means most of the children, because that's a low prevalence uh, population, who test positive probably are false positives. Um, so here you've got a diagnostic criteria for the CDC's criteria that says, hey, look, you can have influenza symptoms, we'll call you COVID-19. You can have no symptoms and have a positive test that's probably got a huge overdiagnosis rate, we'll call you COVID-19. About the only thing you couldn't have was you couldn't have a positive test for another pathogen, all right? Now, the reason that becomes important is at the same time the CDC started changing all these regulations, it also went out and said, hey, we're going to make all the hospitals close down and not do any of their elective surgeries. So the problem with that's the lifeblood of a surgery. I used to be elected physician to one of the the local health network's physician boards. Mm -hmm. I've gotten to see what the finances of a hospital are, and that's their lifeblood, right? Mm -hmm. Elective surgeries are. But then what the CDC says, well, we don't want you to go bankrupt because we do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to pay you $13,000 for every person you admit who has either a positive test or symptoms, don't have to have both, as long as they don't have an influenza test, and we'll give you $39,000 as long as they end up on a ventilator and don't have another test, symptoms or a positive test, that's all we need. So I can tell you that as soon as you do that financially to a group of hospital administrators, especially since hospitals have very narrow margins, all right? Uh, the very first thing they do is they go down to the doctors and say, look, um, I don't care what's going on here. You don't do an influenza test until we've got the COVID-19 test back. If the COVID-19 test is positive, we're not doing an influenza test, all right? Because that scores 13,000. And they go to every borderline case. I don't know if he needs the vent or not. It's like you're putting a tube down his throat, all right? And they can enforce this. Uh, because the federal government, starting about 15 years ago, herded all of the doctors with financial incentives into being part of what's called an accountable care organization, and that which is usually a hospital system. And that accountable care organization has clauses in the doctor's contract that says they can fire the doctor anytime they want to, and if they do, the doctor has to move 10 to 20 miles away, 
sometimes as much as 50 miles away for a year to two years before he can come back and practice again. He can't contact any of his patients, tell him where he's going, take his records with him. So they basically own his practice and they can take it away from him and bankrupt him. So when that problem comes down and the CEO of the hospital says, look, this is the new protocol, we're doing that, it's what the doctor does. And now you have an enormous reclassification of influenza cases being reclassified as COVID-19. Um, and so that's why we saw this big reduction. What can't explain it is the fact that we did all these virus avoidance measures, because we already studied that in influenza, it didn't work. Um, and in fact, uh, the idea that the virus avoidance measures don't work is all over the CDC's website. They just choose not to pay attention to the people they commission to do that work. Um, and so the, when people say, well, gee, it looked like influenza in a way, didn't all of the virus avoidance measures work? I tell them, no, it was a misclassification error. And it was one strategically designed to make it so it would gin up the importance of COVID-19. There was no other reason to do it because there's no rational reason to have changed the reporting criteria. Um, all it would have made us do is give somebody a justification for a misallocation of resources, um, which is what we've seen happen. And you saw this because you were personally at one time involved in, uh, as you say, the for-pay private surgery centers through the hospital. So you know how this affected the hospitals and the docs and the finances of the hospitals because you've been involved in this on a personal level. Yeah, and I can even show you my contract that has all those clauses in there. By the way, they also have clauses there that make it so the doctor's not allowed to say he has a contract with that health network because they don't want people to know this is doing it. And they have clauses in there that allow them to control how the doctor spends his continuing medical education budget so they can make sure he only studies the stuff that the government wants him to study. Okay. Um, and so this has been going on for 15 years now. We have an entire generation of doctors who can only think about the protocols that are put down by the federal government. I, I should have mentioned that the other thing about these accountable care organizations, uh, the government can tell whenever you enter a prescription because you have to link a diagnosis with it. So they know when you're writing a prescription, what you're writing it for, how well you're following the guidelines. And they actually tell these health networks that look, we're gonna cut your reimbursement if your doctors aren't following the guidelines close enough. So the government doesn't know what the doctor's actually doing, but the health network does, all right? Mm -hmm. They don't know exactly which patient he did it for, but they can call up and say, hey, Dan, you know, you're not writing enough uh, ACE inhibitors for people with high blood pressure. And you don't do that, you're out on the street. And right. by the way, if you get filed from that hospital, no other hospital's gonna touch you because you'll hurt that bottom line as well. So now you're effectively blacklisted. Well, and this was used by the CDC and the FDA because they rapidly came out and said, hey, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, they're not to be used in COVID-19 disease. And so once they said that, that was part of the protocol, doctor writes it, he's toast. And so they could actually make it so that these people would stay sick and never get helped until they were so sick that they looked worse than they needed to be. And that would gin up the fear. Um, and this is the thing that most sounds like the genocide. I, I can't tell the difference between this and gassing 6 million Jews. Um, this whole message from the CDC of look, You've got COVID-19, go home until you're damn near dead, then go to the hospital yeah. so you get a tube down your throat. When had we intervened rapidly um, with things like ivermectin, COVID-19, zinc, quercetin, uh, hydroxychloroquine, actually the most active thing I've seen is the active form of vitamin D called 25-hydroxyvitamin D. Absolutely. You, which you're not allowed to compound up in the United States because I know I called it my compounding pharmacist when I read the study that said it was 100% effective on death and 90% effective on ICU admission. 
and asked him to compound it up for me and said, the FDA's already sent out a notice that if we do that, we get a $50,000 fine and lose our license. Yeah, um, you know, to me, this, this just enrages me. This is a criminal conspiracy to withhold information that every citizen on this planet needs to know in case they do end up being exposed to and become symptomatic with COVID versus a, a standard influenza. And the fact that these doctors are prepared to do that and they're not allowed to for fear of losing their license or their status with an HMO, et cetera, or even a lawsuit, for example. I, 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 this goes back to what you said at the very beginning of the interview. This is an agenda that is so deep and to me so dark and so obvious, I don't know why anybody's even arguing about it. I mean, you tell your patients, you have had people with COVID and you put them on these things and no one went to the hospital. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people would say, well, he's only treated 15 people. That's a small sample size. But I tell people, you know, guys, you make it sound like I'm the only data point that's out there. America's frontline doctors, uh, the FLCCC, frankly, if you don't even want to have credentials, if you just want to go read literature, um, I can share with you a link that has 31 trials placebo-controlled, randomized, blinded trials in ivermectin. The only one that didn't show a benefit was rigged so it would fail. Uh, they took everybody out of the trial who was anything but the mildest of mildest COVID-19 compared to ivermectin to placebo, low dose. Of course, it didn't work. Um, and so I tell people it was one of those things you say, yeah, this, this is like doing a study of birth control pills on men. Yeah. You know, yeah, they don't keep men from getting pregnant. They must not work. Um, you know, so... I tell people this this disinformation campaign, which has been uh, run by the government through the media, um, you know, guys, it doesn't rest upon my credentials or anybody else's credentials. There is solidly published medical literature that indicates that the government is doing this, um, inarguable literature. So let's dive into it. You, you're very outspoken about um, the jabs and kids in particular, and you were addressing a school board, and I'd like to talk about this. Um, we're, we even argue with our 14-year-old who is arguing because he's been reading all the standard, uh, watching all the standard media more than reading. Uh, he's afraid, he feels he really needs to have an inoculation, right? He needs to have that vaccination, and we're trying to share science with him. So he, he's advocating for it himself. He's been totally brainwashed. Let's talk about that with kids, what it's actually doing with them, what the death rates for people, for kids who actually uh, contract COVID-19 is versus the problems or deaths for those who have had vaccines and whatever you care to share with us. So the last numbers I saw on people under the age of 18 dying from COVID-19 is that 99.98% of them will recover. Um, so that's 0.02% of them are going to die. Um, the ones who are going to die are actually fairly easy to identify because they have chronic inflammatory diseases that are already ongoing. Um, and when you look at the risk of that, um, and then have to put that up, first of all, against the risk of masking and social distancing. Um, and I don't mean just the physiologic effects of masking, because we already know that it raises carbon dioxide levels, lowers oxygen level, increases respiratory rate. Um, causes headaches. This is all very well worked right. out even in, in adults. And we have a study that says it's even worse in children. The smaller the child, the worse it becomes and the faster it gets there. Um, if you look at, then you get into the risks of just the social isolation of making people so they can't read facial expressions. 
Um, you know, now you end up with these harms far outweighing the benefits of masking. And then you're into the discussion of vaccines. Um, and I, I want to start off by telling people I am not an anti-vax doctor. Glad my mom and dad gave me measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Give it to my own kid after I made sure they had adequate zinc, selenium, iron, iodine, and vitamin D. All right. Um, but not all vaccines are wonderful. And vaccines have had a bad track record. And, you know, the ones that have had the worst track record are viral respiratory pathogens for what we call low penetrance pathogens. Mm -hmm. So you have to know that for respiratory syncytial virus, common cold, influenza, even COVID-19, around 70% of the people who become infected never develop any symptoms at all. So the first thing you need to know about that is in this big equation about disease, which is, hey, the strength of the pathogen times the strength of your immune system kind of thing, um, that the pathogen variable is very small and that the big variable is the health of the immune system. Well, those are not amenable to vaccines because the vaccine, the only people who are going to benefit is that 30% who obviously have a bad immune system to begin with. Mm -hmm. And when you have a bad immune system, you start trying to tickle it with a vaccine, it's very easy to make things go wrong. And by the way, that's not happened rarely. Um, in the 1960s, the uh, FDA didn't require animal trials before you could do vaccine trials in humans. Mm -hmm. And they took respiratory syncytial virus, which has the same spread, same peak time of year as influenza, COVID-19. They divided a bunch of kids up, gave them influ uh, dummy shots or gave them the true vaccine, followed them out. And, you know, at first looked good, all right? RSV symptoms and all that went down compared to placebo, but then started to rebound. I think it was around nine months to a year uh, when it actually there were more kids dying from RSV than there were in, in the vaccinated group than there were in the placebo group. So the vaccine actually killed people. That's um, what I'm concerned about is the long-term effects, not, not just the short-term, maybe reducing symptoms in the first few months. Well, uh, and, and I can make this even scarier. Uh, what these people die from is a condition called antibody-mediated or antibody-dependent enhancement, all right? Say Which that in English. Only, I'm say, sorry? Say that in English for all, all us lay people that are watching. So antibody-mediated or antibody-dependent enhancement is a mechanism by which you actually get the immune system so that when it recognizes the pathogen, it fights wrong. And it fights so incorrectly that your immune system actually works worse than if you were never vaccinated at all and you just took your chances on the bug. Um, that's what we saw happen with RSV. Um, there was another vaccine made for dengue virus tried out in the Philippines that did the exact same thing. Yeah. A dengue virus being another virus, the majority of people who get it don't get symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, they tried to do this with animal trials for both the SARS and MERS coronavirus. And these were all abandoned because in the animal trials, the animals got antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE. And so those were abandoned. And on the track record of knowing that, hey, look, for low-penetrance pathogens, especially respiratory low-penetrance pathogens, and including two previous coronaviruses, they said, well, we're just going to roll this out in humans without any animal trials. And I like people to understand what the standard before this was because of the previous failures of these vaccine trials and knowing that it was easy to make a vaccine that screwed up immune systems. Until COVID-19, the way you had to get a vaccine approved was you had to do animal trials and carry them out at least two years. And that way we could give multiple exposures of the pathogen to the animals to see if they were going to get ADE. And then if you didn't bother to screw anything up in those two, three years, you could take small groups of humans 
and you could give them varying doses of this thing. We'd see which all organs it went out to. We'd follow those people and their organs out for two to three years. Nothing ugly turned up in that. Then you could do a small trial of humans, placebo-controlled, randomized, and blinded. Nothing went bad in that. Then you could do a large placebo-controlled, randomized, blinded trial that had to be carried out two to three years so we could make sure they didn't get ADE. And then after you got that done, then you'd be allowed to market to the American population. As and opposed to what happened with this Pfizer and, and Moderna vaccine? And the Johnson and John for that matter. What they did was take a population of people who is healthier than the average American, and they were healthier than the average American because they had no deaths in the placebo group. Um, if you just use the numbers that, that those of us who calculate COVID-19 the same way as influenza calculate them, you would have expected two people to die in the placebo group. If you'd used the CDC's inflated numbers, you would have expected 20 people to die in the placebo group. This group had no deaths. And they excluded anybody with autoimmune diseases. If you were pregnant, if you'd previously been infected, if you had a positive test but no symptoms, if you had symptoms but no tests, um, if you had anything that even resembled that you had that, you were out of the trial. So they had a group of people who was just healthy enough that they'd get enough symptoms we could show a difference from placebo, but healthy enough they wouldn't go off and get anything bad happen to them, follow them out for three months, and after they will show that they reduced the number of symptomatic cases of COVID-19, they vaccinated the entire placebo group. So I, have a, I know somebody who works for Moderna has confirmed 90% of the placebo group is vaccinated, which means now the, the drug companies have plausible deniability. Nobody can prove I caused anything, all right? Right. Um, and so that's the way these trials were done. All of the safety steps that were there for vaccines, every one of them has so been, been circumvented. You know, when the, Dan, just to add something here, when the first person was vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine in England, which happened, rolled out there before America, I remember reading the BBC that day and they showed this 93-year-old woman smiling coming out after the jab. But it said in the article itself, now granted, they have uh, socialized medicine, so there's a little different standard there. Um, and Pfizer themselves made the statement that this is not for people who have had previous allergies uh, to vaccines in particular, who have even food allergies. And there was one other very common one. Any of these allergies um, would be grounds to not be allowed to have that vaccine. By the time it hit America, there were none of those warnings that were made public. And that was by the BBC to their public. Don't get it if you tend to be allergic to food and, to, and if you've had an allergic reaction to previous vaccines? Well, I think probably the most horrific, horrific thing is previously, when a vaccine would be tested in a group of people that had exclusionary criteria, hey, you won't get in the trial if you got X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Then when the vaccine was approved, it was only approved for people who were not in the excluded categories. Right. Um, and almost immediately when this thing was vaccinated, the CDC and the NIH come out and say, hey, we're going to recommend it for every human being, including the most irrational group of people to vaccinate, which is those who have already recovered from COVID-19. You know, we don't give chickenpox vaccines to people who've got chickenpox already. We don't give measles, mumps, rubella to people who have measles, mumps, rubella already. But all of a sudden, and it, these groups were excluded from the trial, and all of a sudden they hear, no, everybody in the world should take this thing, even though they had no pregnancy studies at the time, saying people should get these things done. Um, and so the, uh, the, the, the departure from scientific reason has been total. Um, 
And, and the only thing that can, you can even claim was anything near science was at least they did a placebo-controlled randomized blinded trial. But again, the rigor of these trials was extremely narrow. Um, and certainly, knowing that antibody-mediated or dependent enhancement was a known risk with coronavirus vaccines in animal trials and had been seen with other low-penetrance pathogen respiratory uh, diseases, to have rolled this out without long-term um, uh, studies, especially since there were inexpensive, very safe, better effective treatments on the market already. Um, I can only equate this with annihilating juice. Um, this is as, as thoughtless as, as gassing people. Um, I can come up with no other analogy that is as good. It because would it cannot be naivete. I tell people you can only get so stupid for free. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, there has to be the play of money or some ulterior motive. Um, again, I don't know what the ulterior motives are, but I know they aren't based in science and biology. And therefore, I would tell anybody, hey, guys, you have to accept that this is not a conspiracy theory. This is a conspiracy. We may not know what the motive is, but it's a conspiracy. Agreed. So I know you're tight on time. And so I want to ask you, what do you think is the most uh, pernicious aspect of this? And then also, what do you think is the best way for us to, to manage, just tossing out for the average person that either has had the vaccine but is now maybe symptomatic with reinfection or people who are, have not yet been infected and don't have the antibodies yet. What would you tell them to do in terms of taking care of themselves since there are so few doctors that are even able to help them or willing to help them? Well, let me start off with the um, governmental responses on this because I tell people, you know, when if somebody had stopped Adolf Hitler when he took over Czechoslovakia, we wouldn't have had World War II. Yeah. Uh, when governments step out like this, they continue to get greedier and more forceful. Uh, once they've decided that they can kill people and they're even planning on hurting up the unvaccinated and putting them in concentration camps, that's already on their website. Um, I tell people right now, the thing you do to fight back against your government consequences of this vaccine thing is you call your state legislators and tell them you want legislation to ban vaccine discrimination. Um, and take back the power from your state board of health. Take that back to the legislature. We have to fight back this federal government and then tell them to support the convention of states organization so that we can actually take this federal government and take away the power, which is so worth buying that lobbyists purchase it every day. Um, and then short let me add one thing in there because yeah. no one's talking about the, the whole vaccine discrimination thing. No one's talking about immunity versus non-immunity. Many millions of people have natural immunity because they've already caught COVID. They've already had it. And that's not even spoken of. And people who, who are unsymptomatic have, not, uh, have also developed antibodies by exposure without being symptomatic, not even in the conversation. It should be an argument of immune versus non-immune and then the fda calls two weeks ago for us to not ask for antibody tests now that that really got me so anyway well you can tell the reason they're not they don't want that yeah. uh, the hallmark of antibody mediated viral enhancement is that they make higher levels of antibodies than people who have natural infection early on in this the fda was actually crowing about the fact they had that and then quietly quit talking about how good the antibody levels were with the vaccine. I think somebody said, you know, hey, look, you're tipping your hand here, dude. Yeah. Um, but you're right. When you discuss immunity, um, you know, you don't even have to demonstrate immunity with an antibody to see that you've got it. 
You can demonstrate it by saying, hey, I have a zinc, latency a zinc taste test latency of one to five seconds. I have a 25 hydroxy vitamin D level greater than 55. Um, I take 400 micrograms a day of selenium and 6.25 milligrams a day of iodine. My iron index score is good. These are all things that'll tell you, look, I'm gonna have an asymptomatic exposure if I get the thing anyway. Right. Um, and none of that, no one is asking for any documentation that you have that to demonstrate immunity, right. which means in the end, it isn't really about immunity, it's about getting people vaccinated. And it that's is. all they really care about. Okay, um, so the things you just mentioned, anything else you wanna to add to that to tell us very simply and clearly what we can do to build our immune system because this thing's gonna be circulating around for a while. So I would tell anybody, start taking five to 10,000 international units of vitamin D3 a day whatever amount it takes to get you a 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 level approximately six weeks later that's greater than 55. And by the way, as long as the level is less than 110, 120, don't worry about if your dose is up that high, it's not gonna hurt you, all right? Okay. Um, along with that, I have people take whatever amount of zinc supplementation they need to get, so that if they take a 2% solution of zinc sulfate, which you can buy online, lots of places sell it, you take a teaspoon, put it in your mouth and hold it, and you count how many seconds it takes for you to taste something besides water. For most people, it'll be bitter metallic. Some people find it to be sweet. But what matters is, hey, is this one second, two second, five seconds? If it's more than 15 seconds, you're pretty severely deficient still. Um, I tell people if you're in the six to 10 seconds, I'd probably take a little more and retest in two weeks. If you're one to five seconds, you're ducky. Um, if it's coming on immediately, you might want to back down a little bit. Uh, you may get a little bit too much zinc and make yourself get copper deficiency. That's fascinating. Um, I haven't heard that from anyone. That's wonderful. What else can we do? Well, if you're going to take large doses of vitamin D, I would recommend 200 to 2,000 micrograms of broad-spectrum vitamin K a day. Uh, vitamin D can make you go back to absorbing calcium normally. And if your diet or other things are making your vitamin K level low, um, then you actually won't handle this new calcium right, and you can get calcification issues. Um, along with that, I tell people 200 to 400 micrograms of selenium a day. And then when you've passed your taste test and you've got somewhere between 200 and 400 micrograms of selenium a day, and I lean more towards 400 unless you're a small person. We don't have a really good test for selenium like we do for zinc. Um, then add into that 6.25 milligrams of a 50-50 mixture of iodine and iodide. Uh, that's called Lugol's iodine. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of preparations that can be offered that. And the other thing I would tell people to do is to make sure that you have adequate iron. And that's assessed by doing something called an iron index, which is by, done by measuring your soluble transferrin receptor and your ferritin level. And you divide the soluble transferrin receptor by the log to the base 10 of your ferritin level. And that number is less than 1.5. Iron is probably good. Um, borderline cases, you can do what's called a transferrin saturation. If that's greater than 25%, you're probably good. But I always doubt that's the second choice test. It's not quite as reliable as the iron index is. And if you've got those things passed, you probably, if you do get COVID-19, you're going to be minimally symptomatic and easily treated with ivermectin. And then I tell people, if you really want to go to the mat with this, ivermectin has wonderful data saying that if you dose it once a week with 12 to 24 milligrams oh, once a week. Once a week, 12 milligrams, yeah. yeah it actually prevents symptomatic COVID-19 disease. Um, you know, and that, by the way, is, is much cheaper 
a year's supply of that is much cheaper than any COVID-19 vaccine. <laughs> and side effects much less than any COVID-19 vaccine. Um, in fact, one of the big misnomers people need to know about the vaccines is that they, they actually don't prevent symptoms, they cause them. Yeah. Uh, to give you the numbers for Pfizer's vaccine, I think they prevented, it was either 165, 170 symptomatic cases of COVID-19, but to do so, they had to cause approximately 18,000 sore arms, approximately 6,500 cases of, excuse me, 11,500 cases of fatigue, and 6,750 cases of fever to prevent 100, approximately 170 cases of a febrile fatiguing painful disease. And so I tell people, if you actually look at all the symptoms caused, this thing actually caused more symptoms than it prevented, um, which makes it hard to make the argument that the vaccine is better than the disease. Yeah. You can make the argument from these short-term trials that in the short term, the vaccine did reduce severe disease and hospitalization. Mm -hmm. The natural history of antibody-mediated viral enhancement is that it gets worse over time with subsequent exposures until eventually it's actually worse than vaccination and no longer preventing anything. And I can tell you, those of us who are into inflammation regulation and immune regulation are very worried. We're not sure we know how to prevent that if you get into ADE. We're not sure we know how to talk your immune system back out of it again. We have some ideas, but, you know, no studies have ever been done on a group of people in ADE trying to get them out of that because we kept these vaccines from getting to market before this. Um, Yikes. Okay, so let me ask you one practical question and then I'll let you go because I know you got tons of stuff going. Everybody's after you right now. Um, a lot of our doctors won't allow for those. They will not um, call for those labs. So a mm -hmm. lot of our HMOs and such won't cover them. Um, there are things like personal labs and these other labs that pop up on the internet, some associated with Quest Laboratory, for example, and others. Are these reliable that we can just go straight pay, just get someone to draw the blood and go straight pay on it? Or do most of these require a prescription, a doctor's order? No, you can actually always order your own lab tests. And most of the time that discount lab that's selling it to him, he's going to take it down to the local Quest or LabCorp and have it done there anyway. Exactly. Uh, he's just got a contract that allows him to get it done at a cash-free market price. Um, so no, they're reliable labs. They're being done by reputable labs. That are, by the way, all those labs that I mentioned, they're all what are called um, uh, referenced labs, which means if you want to be a lab in the United States and you want to sell those tests, the FDA has to regulate you and make sure you're doing it. So they're passing the same regulations as all the ones who take insurance in that. And every one of those labs I mentioned, you can get done through one of these cash pay labs. Yep. And I encourage people, you know, you'll usually get them cheaper than if you go through your insurance, mm -hmm. especially a high deductible plan. So take control of your own health care, take control of your own money, um, ignore the CDC, the NIH, and the FDA. These people are not our friends. They aren't trustworthy. Um, and take control of your own health care. And then if you want to get a vaccine after hearing all this and reading all this data, hey, that's your call. I support your right to do that. Um, but I think most of America, if they knew what those of us who have seen these vaccines and what they do, those of us have to clean up the messes they cause. Um, I think if more people saw that, they would probably not choose to take vaccine and certainly wouldn't get a booster. By the way, I should mention, if someone is developing antibody-mediated viral enhancement, the worst possible thing you can do is give them a booster.
because it actually makes it develop faster. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I have been reading about that. And I have to say, you've given so much useful information to people and also help us piece together how these stats came out over the last year. And I so much appreciate your taking the time to do this. You're a warrior and you keep going. I know you're going to be popping up everywhere over the next year. And uh, thanks for your courage. I appreciate it. Well, I think you want to talk about courage, you talk about Cyril and Dorothea Stock. That's my mom and dad. World War II fighter pilot and the woman who let him cry out all the tears from that. Um, that's courage greater than mine. I'm just trying to live up to the legacy of my parents. Well, I think you're doing that. And thank you so much. And I'm sure they'd be very proud of you. Thank well, you. I hope so. Thank you. Until next time, everyone, uh, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com. <laughs>